Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I'm uh, from Cabinet Office, and we have a not always delightful job of joining, trying to join things at the cross government. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'll be picking up in my presentation is how the role of visualisation can play in facilitating some of the discussions about how we do join up and make changes across government. But I really want to try and focus on really the kind of practical aspects of how do we turn, make, the, make use of data in particular to translate policy ideas to practice and make the connection between the two. So I have um, three real issues, uh, areas where I think uh, data is beneficial uh, to government. The first one is what I described here as making the connection and understanding the relationship between macro and micro views. Um, so I'll tell you uh, something of a story here. This is uh, something, the work I was involved in. Um, if you look at the chart at the, in the bottom left, uh, and apologies for, but because of the nature of the work I do, which is in counter-fraud, I have to uh, spare some of the data, details that would normally be on uh, presentations. But fundamentally what we have here in the bottom left is a situation where we have three groups of people doing three different types of work and we're looking at how do we make the best use of their resource to achieve a policy objective. <coughs> and the proposed change that we're wanting to make is to go to the option illustrated at the top right, top left. Um, and you can see there that what we're effectively doing is collapsing the red and blue strands of resource and work into one and leaving the green one largely untouched. You can actually see that there's some increase in the level of resource given to the green strand there. So the point here is, from a policy perspective, from the macro perspective, we have two options. And we have an option that looks like it achieves a better outcome. And the resource implications are largely neutral for the remaining blue strand. Some slight reduction in resource, but the economies of scale we get by merging two teams gives us an overall productivity gain. So we should end up with an improvement there, and everybody in the blue and red strands are happy about that. The green strand gets a slight increase in work, there's an increase in results. So from a policy perspective, this macro view, everyone's quite convinced that this is a win-win situation, which doesn't happen too often in government. What we found in practice, and this is slightly before I got involved, was that there was considerable resistance by this green strand. And no one could really understand why does the green strand oppose something that involves them in a net gain situation. At that point, I was asked to get involved. And what I did, so in terms of trying to unpick and understand this problem, is to say, okay, from a policy point of view, this looks like a win-win. What happens when we try and turn that policy, this macro view, into a micro view? So what we do in the top right, you start to look not at the different strands of resource, but what happens when we implement these resource changes on individual teams. And specifically, and this was the one, after looking at many different visualizations and testing many different relationships, this is the one that really brings home the roots of the problem as to why green perceive that they're losing out, even though they end up with more. Quite simply, when we do the resource splits according to the allocation rules that exist in practice, and these are things that policy people at a macro level tend not to think about, is these practical details of resource allocation in the real world. 
what we find is that the resource sharing works relatively fairly for teams of three or more. But when we get small teams of only one or two people, because of the resource allocation process, and you can understand some of the relatively simple detail that goes on, if you, you can't have one and a third people or one and a th 1.2 computer systems, you have to have one or two. What happens in practice is when we get down to the very small numbers, people lose out the rounding, uh, and we end up with effectively people gaining more work but getting no more resource. If we look at the bottom right, and we look at the distribution of the sizes of teams, what we find is actually the majority of teams are very small. And this is something, again, policy people have not looked at. You're looking at a macro view, how many thousands of people do we have working across the country trying to do this type of work. Don't really think about the fact that in many parts of the country we're actually working in rural areas in very small teams. And local implementation is often done at a very micro scale. And what happened that when we start to unpick this, we realized that there's very good reasons why a net gain at a macro level doesn't translate, often translates into a loss at a micro level. Um, so the lesson here for me, uh, unfortunately we did this analysis too late in the day to start looking at options that could do benefit everybody across all scales. But what we were able to do was to put in place, if you like, some compensatory mechanisms for those very small teams to make sure that the overall impact on them was neutral. But the real lesson for me here, in terms of the value of visualization in policy making, is that we can use some relatively simple visualization to, to translate macro impacts into micro level impacts and really get an understanding of what are we doing in terms of our policy objectives, how does that translate to what's going on on the ground and the real impacts on people, teams, local officers in different government organisations. And that can change our thinking, not necessarily about what policy objective we're trying to achieve, but about whether or not what we intend to do at a macro level will actually achieve our macro level objective, or are there details in working down to the micro that causes us problems. Second point, um, in terms of where I find visualisation particularly important, um, is looking at rare events. Um, and particularly about the cost of data. We talk about big data an awful lot and how data and the analysis of data and bringing together huge volumes of data is increasingly very low cost and very easy to do. And we can do a lot more now on our laptops and on our iPhones than we used to be able to do on supercomputers. But the reality of the situation quite often is that allows us, that kind of data analysis allows us to formulate hypotheses or to produce predictive models that identify high risk cases or people of interest or companies of interest that we want to make an intervention on. Actually understanding the effectiveness of those interventions involves not just data collection but very careful design of evaluation and the collection of data not on so taking the understanding of the data, customer segmentation, predictive models, behavioural analytics, using that big data, but then looking at what happens when we act on that data and make interventions on the ground. And that making interventions on the ground and doing evaluation is often quite expensive, time-consuming, 
and social researchers appreciate this longitudinal evaluation of social impacts and social outcomes in specific cases. And that's not cheap. When we're looking at rare events, um, some very interesting things happen that visualization can really help with. What I'm illustrating here is actually using simulated data to look at a particular problem in the fraud arena. And what, we're, what I'm showing here uh, with the red line is if we have fraud rates occurring at a rate of around 10% of all of our transactions or all of the people in a particular population committing a fraud, then we can use random sampling to do an evaluation because the distribution of the rare events reflects the normal distribution of the, under the overall population. So random sampling works fine. As we start to get into scarcer events, so we get down to 2 and 1%, when we do typical sampling, the, under the sampling from the rare events ceases to become normal. We start to get very unusual behaviours. And the only way of dealing with that in practice in terms of data collection using conventional methods is to scale up the size of the samples. But that meets with real costs. If you're doing social research, asking people in offices to spend time writing evaluation reports, nurses to take additional notes and so on, that has a real cost that impacts the quality and the quantity of work that those people can do. So what we can do instead is to use these simulations to look at what happens if when we get to certain levels of scarcity in events and we're interested in the rare events, not the 99% of what goes on normally, can we change the way that we do things? So the way our sampling methods, uh, our research methods, our data collection techniques, to reduce to, so that we can achieve validity in the kind of evaluation we're doing of our policy outcomes, but keep the cost of the data collection and of getting genuine insights from the big data to a minimum. So the third point in terms of value of data, and again, I'm being a bit flippant here, but I talk about the end of economics. Is what we, um, quite often in government, we have quite blunt policy levers. So we have things like controlling inflation rates, you know, um, tax, tax rates, and so on. These are really quite blunt tools. Increasingly, as we use big data, what we find is that we can get more and more micro-level understanding of what's going on at a small scale. How do things like interest rates impact on the national economy, but how does that break down regionally by industry sector for different social and demographic groups? So there's huge value in that, and there's huge value in visualizing that information and presenting the different causal factors that inter cause people, um, cause policy, these blunt tools, to have quite unpredictable and sometimes undesirable impacts at a lower level. I think visualisation can play a huge role in that. I think there are some real challenges there, and I just mentioned two particular challenges I think we have for visualisation. First one, and I think that comes back to the point that the, I'm from the University of York was making, is visualisation is very powerful from a perceptual point of view, but not necessarily from a cognitive point of view. And what I mean by that is people see patterns. Our visual system is designed to see patterns. And quite often, seeing patterns, we see them where there is none. And visualization often creates more problems than it solves in that respect. 
allows people to see patterns. You present random data, people will see clusters in that data, and they will believe those clusters are non-random because where there is a cluster of something, they will perceive a pattern. That's a real problem. And how do we get visualization to allow people to understand what's a relationship rather than what's random? Um, people often confuse randomness with homogeneity. And when you present things visually, they then start to see things that they see as non-homogenous, as being actual relationships of interest. And that's a real policy problem, because what we start to see, if we're not careful, is people going from looking at how their policy is causing impacts on the ground and the complications of multiple causal factors to people responding to patterns in data. And if we're not careful, what we actually find is people becoming less and less concerned with the policy and long-term strategy and more and more responsive to data. You can see that with embedding data as well, that you embed data in devices uh, in real time. People respond rather than thinking of what they're trying to achieve long-term. So I'll stop there. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.